Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to episode 18 of the Lovable Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the one illusion you cannot afford to believe in. One question I get a lot is, how do I know when I've started to truly embrace my worthiness? And my answer is, when you begin to see through this particular illusion, you know your worthiness is becoming a felt and lived experience. So we're going to dig into that illusion today. Before we do that, though, a reminder, these podcasts are being recorded every Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock Central Time or Chicago Time on Facebook Live, so you can go to my Facebook page, Dr. Kelly Flanagan, at 9 o'clock on Wednesdays to join. Um, If you want a reminder to tune in on Wednesday mornings or if you want to be kept up to date on these episodes uh, or if you just want to get my every other week blog post or if you just want to get a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down or a free sample of Lovable um, to read or share with people, you can go to my website. It's drkellyflanagan.com. It's drkellyflanagan.com. Sign up there in the right sidebar for my weekly newsletter and you'll get that free stuff and all those reminders. We'd love to have you join us. And remember, this podcast is meant to cultivate and deepen the experiences that will already be happening within you as you read Lovable. So if you want to pick up a copy of Lovable, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com. You can also go to Amazon. I checked yesterday. There's now 243 reviews. 94% of them are five stars. The, The response from folks has just been overwhelming, and I'm grateful for it. And so you can kind of see what people are saying there about Lovable. But pick it up wherever books are sold. Uh, go to your favorite place. You don't have to buy at Amazon and uh, and pick up your copy. And last but not least, I, this, I'm excited about this. I want to tell you about a really special opportunity. The weekend of April 20th, this just two months away, I'll be leading a small, private, lovable retreat weekend in Waco, Texas. We're going to be hosted by Ashton and Bryn Gustafson. Ashton is the host of the Good, True, and Beautiful podcast um, and becoming a friend of mine. And uh, they just do this beautiful thing where periodically they open their home to host a retreat like this. And uh, there's still a few spots open. So if you want to join us, you can get your tickets at mkt.com backslash Ashton. It's mkt.com backslash Ashton. Uh, I'll be joined by my wife that week. We'd love to meet you in Waco. So please consider it. And uh, I think that's it. So onward, let's get into this week's episode. It's my favorite topic and conversation so far. Let's lose our illusion. And thanks again for tuning in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 17 of the year of listening, loving, and living. This week is entitled, The One Illusion We Cannot Afford to Believe In. It's hard to believe, but today we are exactly one third of the way through the podcast which means this is the last week of the months of listening in which we've been remembering and recognizing our truest self and embracing our worthiness once again. And it means next week we'll be transitioning into the months of loving, where we'll be focused on revealing our true self and cultivating true belonging with our people. 
But before we do any of that, let's pause to reflect on these months of listening. What practices from the last 16 weeks have stuck with you? Which have been most helpful? Uh, what do you continue to struggle with? And, and where do you find yourself today as we stand on the brink of transitioning into the months of living? And while you're thinking about what you want to say, um, give you a moment to think about that, I thought I would share the lyrics to a song that dropped, I think, just this week. It's by, uh, I guess the, the group is called Sleeping At Last, but really um, it's a one-man band. His name is Ryan O'Neill, uh, and he's engaged in this ambitious project of creating a song for every number of the Enneagram, which is sort of a... Um, I won't go into it in too much depth, but it's sort of a personality survey um, that is deeply meaningful and informative in so many ways. I highly recommend folks become familiar with it. But he's writing a song for each number of the Enneagram, one through nine, and so he just dropped his song for three. Um, and the lyrics to the song, I think, couldn't be more beautiful and couldn't be a better summary of uh, uh, of our months of listening. So. And thought I'd read those lyrics to you as you guys are thinking about what you want to say. Here they are. Maybe I've done enough, and your golden child grew up. Maybe this trophy isn't real love, and with or without it, I'm good enough. Maybe I've done enough, finally catching up. For the first time, I see an image of my brokenness, utterly worthy of love. Maybe I've done enough. And I finally see myself through the eyes of no one else. It's so exhausting on this silver screen, where I play the role of anyone but me. And I finally see myself, unabridged and overwhelmed, a mess of a story I'm ashamed to tell, but I'm slowly learning how to break this spell, and I finally see myself. Now I only want what's real, to let my heart feel what it feels. Gold, silver, or bronze hold no value here, where work and rest are equally revered. I only want what's real. I set aside the highlight reel and leave my greatest failures on display with an asterisk, worthy of love anyway. I think that song is such a great summary of the journey that we've been on in these months of listening from initially trying to cultivate rest um, and space where we disrupt this tendency to think that what we do is who we are, that what we produce is equivalent to our sense of worth uh, and we begin to get reconnected with who we truly are and discover a sense of worthiness that has been within us all along and is with us all along no matter what we do or don't do so i just think it's such a beautiful way to encapsulate these these months of listening so again that was uh, a song called atlas three by sleeping at last if you want to check it out i think you can pretty much find it anywhere music is streaming Julie writes, here's a snapshot related to messes and uncertainty and sort of being playful with narratives. In my thought stream, I've noticed a few not-so-flattering, judgmental, mental narratives about other people. It goes like this. An observation is attached to a pattern, leading to a conclusion, and the conclusion, of course, displeases me. Needing something to be different that I cannot change. Boom, I'm instantly relaxed. I haven't gone as far as positing an alternate conclusion, and part of me thinks maybe I don't need to, that just letting go is enough. Yeah, Julie... Uh, so what you're getting at is, um, and this is a this is a concept that sort of got fleshed out in Brene Brown's book, uh, Rising Strong, I think. Um, this consciousness of the narratives that are constantly going on in our head, trying to explain other people's behavior, uh, and uh, <laughs> I actually just told someone this yesterday, 
that one of the more common phrases maybe my wife says to me when I'm trying to speculate on why something is going on in a relationship or why something happened in a social situation and you know what were they thinking why did they say that to me she often says I don't think they were thinking about you at all <laughs> like that was it's not about you that's they're just working out their stuff and you were happen to be there for the working out right and uh, and it's sort of what you're saying Julie that you don't have to come up with an accurate or an alternative explanation for what happened in a social situation. You just need to let go of your certainty that uh, it was about something that is unpleasant and displeasing to you. Just loosen that up a little bit, let go of it, and you realize you don't have to have an alternative. You just have to release that, that narrative that is making you so miserable. So I really appreciate that. Um, it's, 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 high, it's high level uh, kind of analysis, and, uh, but I think it'll be helpful for people. Julia writes, I've been broken open. I'm feeling some feelings for the first time in my life. Julia, uh, what a beautiful beginning to healing and transformation. I don't think there's any other way to do it other than beginning to feel the feelings that have been sort of suppressed and, and pushed deep down inside of us. I say this all the time to people in my clinical practice, that people come in saying, I, I feel sort of exhausted. It's not exactly depression. Um, and we talk about the amount of emotional energy it requires to suppress emotions. And that when we begin to let those emotions just sort of surface, when we let ourselves feel them, we think it's gonna feel bad. And I guess in a sense, in the sense that it, sometimes it feels sad, or we feel hurt, or we feel pain, it does feel bad. But then we also get this like, this unexpected return of energy, uh, because the energy we've been dedicating to keeping all that stuff pushed down is now freed up for other things. So people begin to experience in the midst of feeling sadness and sorrow and pain and hurt for the first time, they begin to experience creativity um, and joy and a sense of vibrancy about life that they haven't had in a long time. Um, and so I hope that that's what begins to happen for you as you let these feelings surface for the first time. You also notice the return of energy that comes as you're gathering back the energy that has been getting used unconsciously to keep those at bay. Jamie writes, it's confusing to feel these new feelings of energy and joy when you're used to just sadness and unhappiness, right? Yeah, um, that's, that's exactly it, Jamie, is this sense of, wait a second, um, what I thought was sadness was more emotional numbness and now I realize that sadness is actually a very vibrant experience and it goes along with a sense of, of, of vibrancy and the, the opposite polarity too, a sense of joy and energy. Um, it, uh, it's life coming back essentially and it requires an enormous amount of bravery to do it because we intuitively think, all oh, that's gonna be too painful and I'm just gonna feel worse and worse and instead we begin to feel better and better. Robin writes, it can be so scary to go into the pit and feel the difficult feelings. Asking someone we trust to hold the rope while we jump in can help, whether a good friend or therapist. Yeah, Robin, I can't see the rest of your comment, but there was a point in these months of listening, and I think it was specifically when we started to talk about, um, we use the metaphor of our hearts feeling like a jungle, that our emotions can feel overwhelming and intense and confusing and chaotic at first. And, uh, and I think it was specifically at that point in these months of listening that I, I think the assignment for the week might even have been, it's time to invite someone to join you on this journey. Whether it's a friend that you trust, whether it's a mentor that you trust, uh, or whether you have to go, go talk to a therapist. Um, but invite somebody along on this part of the journey, because at first it can be a little overwhelming. 
Um, over time, you'll figure out how to handle it um, more independently, but at first we might, we might need a little bit of help with that. Um, for me, I remember when that happened the very first time, before I even saw a therapist, I was at church and they'd set up this mentor-mentee program, and I went up to sign to the table to sign up to be a mentor. And uh, I just assumed that's what I was going to do. It never occurred to me to, to, to be a mentee. And the woman at the table said, do you want to be a mentor or a mentee? And it just sort of like, I sort of like I was slapped in the face and going, I need some, I need help right now. I need help sorting through my stuff. And so for the first time in my life, I asked to be a mentee and uh, was just blessed to be connected to the most wonderful mentor uh, who I will actually be mentioning later today um, as we get into this week's reading. So, um, so yes, ask for a mentor, ask for someone to walk with you. It can be chaotic at first. Julie writes, going meta for a second. Kelly, you read to us last week about your favorite ways to gripe. Passive aggressively, of course, you wrote. Thank you for having the courage to write it. It's kind of inner mess. It's the kind of inner mess that many of us can identify with once somebody puts words to it. Yeah, I um, increasingly aware over the years, and I think many of us can testify to this, that our misery is deeply connected to our, our, our need to defend ourselves right? To pretend that we've got it all together, to protect, to say, no, I don't do that. I don't, I'm not passive aggressive, you know, that the, the, the sense of suffering and misery is related to that need to protect and to defend. And that when we give that up, there's instantly a lightness and a freedom to it. And again, you don't have to come up with a better way of relating. You just have to quit defending the the broken way that you do relate. And all of a sudden you feel lighter and more engaged and more connected. So, um, it's, it's not a place I can stay, but it's a place I want to get back to as often as I can because it's, it's where I find the most joy, is even just admitting that, you know, I don't, I don't do it right all the time. Thanks again, everybody, for this discussion. Uh, I'm going to transition us now a little bit more quickly than, than usual into this week's, uh, this week's conversation. It's the last week of listening, the last week about recognizing our true self, embracing our worthiness. This week is, is it, it's really about the hallmark of worthiness. In other words, if someone asks me a question, how, how do I know when I'm truly embracing my worthiness? This week answers that question. Um, so it's about what inevitably happens when we truly embrace our worthiness, and this is it. We begin to see the unconditional worthiness of everyone else as well. So this is one of those weeks where the reading from The Year of Listening, Loving, and Living, this companion book, actually has a very direct parallel in Lovable. Uh, it's closely connected to chapter 13, which is entitled, You Are Somebody and So Is Everyone Else. It's one of my favorite chapters in the book. I remember the morning I wrote it. I remember where I was. I was in a caribou coffee when I wrote it. Um, I had just eaten breakfast with the mentor I just described, and it had been an incredibly um, edifying, spiritually edifying breakfast for me. Um, and I went over to Caribou Coffee and grabbed another cup of coffee and I wrote it and it, it just, the chapter 13 just came out. At that time I thought it would be the fourth chapter in the book. It just came out whole. I sort of knew I would never have to really edit it and I never really did. Um, just one of those writing experiences that every writer dreams of. Um, but I thought rather than reading an excerpt from that chapter um, and trying to give you just a slice of it, what I'd do is I'd read the whole letter that immediately follows it in the book. It's the very last content in the weeks about worthiness. Um, and so I thought I'd read that today uh, as our kind of segueing into this week's reading and conclusion to our, our talks about worthiness. So here it is. A father's letter to his daughter about the worthiness of everyone. Dear little one, 
At 5 a.m. on the morning you and I went on the Today Show, while you were still sleeping in the hotel room with Mama and your brothers, I left the hotel and set out on foot into the dark streets of Manhattan. I was looking for a cheap breakfast, but I was looking for something else as well. I was looking for peace. Sweetie, I was scared, because when I woke up, I had looked in the mirror and staring back at me was a regular dad, an unremarkable psychologist, and a blogger who'd written the right letter to you at the right time. We were about to go on national television, share a stage with famous actors, and answer the questions of famous newscasters. How could I compare? I found a Starbucks, and inside of it I found our breakfast, and my answer. I placed my order for smoothies with the bleary-eyed barista, and in the stillness of the empty cafe, my anxiety screeched within me. Instead of fighting it, I allowed it, and I tried to listen for my trusted companion, the voice within me I call Grace. I was waiting for the voice of Grace to remind me that I'm good enough. But on this morning, it didn't speak to me about my worthiness. It spoke to me about the barista's worthiness. This is what it said. This four minutes is just as important as your four minutes on television. And this young man is just as important as all those famous people you'll meet today. The voice of Grace does that sometimes. It reminds me I don't need to do anything, or earn anything, or prove anything, or look a certain way, or say a certain thing in order to be worthy. And then it reminds me if this is true of me, that it is true of everyone else as well. It reminds me we're all just people trying to figure out what it means to be human. It shows me we're all living and breathing on the same level playing field, no matter how many hierarchies we imagine. How could I compare to all those famous people? I couldn't. The truth is none of us can be compared to anyone else. We are, each one of us, unique and lovely beings. Life isn't about comparison, it's about connection. Some of us forget this, I certainly do. But in the dark hours of a Thursday morning in Manhattan, I was reminded once again. And when you're reminded, all you want to do with your one unique and lovely life is help other people remember too. So I asked the barista his name, and I asked him about his morning. We talked for a while, two human beings doing our best to be human together. No competition, no comparison, only connection. And as we connected, I knew the people I'd be seeing later in the day were just as worthy as this young man, and just as worthy as me. Not more, not less, the same. My anxiety stopped screeching. Sweetie, I fell in love with you when you were still just a cluster of cells inside your mama's tummy. Before you had a body, I loved the way you looked. Before you had a mind, I loved the way it thought. Before you had a heart, I embraced the speed of its tenacious beat. You are forever beautiful, little one and so is everyone else. If you listen to the voice inside of you that reminds you of this truth, your life will become a gift to the world, and you will have peace, the kind of peace that can withstand the low lights and the bright lights. Peace to you, Daddy. So with that context for this week's reading, um, why don't we get into it? It is entitled Week 17, The One Illusion We Cannot Afford to Believe in. I'm on the fifth floor of a hotel in Pennsylvania, waiting for an elevator to the lobby. It's July 4th, Independence Day in America. Early morning, and I'm leaving the hotel to find a cheaper breakfast. You notice a pattern here, folks? As I wait, I become aware of piped-in music overhead. I hear lyrics that remind me of my wife. They go like this. Fortune teller said I'd be free, and that's the day you came to me. I instantly reach for my phone, Google the lyrics, and the song title is the top result. I click out of Google, tap my Spotify app, search for the song, and the song playing above my head is now coming out of my phone. I enjoy the dopamine rush of immediate gratification, and I marvel at the convenience of technology. 
but mostly I revel in my apparent self-sufficiency. 20 years ago, I would, have re- I would have required the help of a number of people to identify the song, find a music store, and purchase the CD. Now I interact with no one. Now I can completely ignore how interdependent all of us are. The truth is, even though I felt like I found my song independently, I was dependent upon thousands of people, perhaps even millions, to make it possible. The device itself was created by people we'd all prefer not to think about. People working for low wages in horrible conditions half a world away. I charged the device in the hotel room, drawing on a power grid created and maintained by thousands of other people. If all those people decide to quit and go home, the power goes out and suddenly I don't feel so independent. Another team of people is responsible for the data service I use to stream the song. The apps I used were created by a team of people and are maintained by another team of people. But I don't see any of them, and I don't hear them, and I don't touch them. I don't look them in the eye. I don't talk to them. I don't shake their hand. I don't have a chance to say thank you. So I feel like I've done it all on my own. I feel independent. What I feel is an illusion. I listen to my new song in the elevator on the way down. I step into the lobby and look up. I see families surrounded by luggage, waiting on one thing or another before loading up the car and departing. I count 34 people, mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and elderly couples and young businessmen and women, and 27 of them are staring downward at a device. 27 out of 34. By the way, this is, I wrote this four years ago, maybe? Three years, four years ago. So the ratio would probably be higher now. 27 out of 34. A lobby full of people with each other and yet pretending to be independent, entertaining themselves, solving their own problems. A lobby full of people on devices that make us feel like a world unto ourselves, self-sufficient, autonomous, and free of each other. The illusion of independence on Independence Day. Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh writes, We are here to awaken from our illusion of separateness. The lobby full of device-gazing people is deeply interconnected, whether they recognize it or not. They're connected at an atomic level. The atoms one person breathes out, breathe, breathes out are breathed in by someone else, and a shock of static electricity will transfer electrons from one person to another. They're connected at an emotional level. When one person is cruel to another, the cruelty is taken in and eventually passed on to another human being. And they're connected at a spiritual level. Their imagined independence is adding slowly to a collective sense of loneliness and disconnection that is, I think, reaching a tipping point. Fortune teller said I'd be free, and that's the day you came to me. Mysteriously, when someone comes to us and joins us in relationship and we lose some of our independence, we gain freedom. Freedom, paradoxically, always happens in connection to another. Because freedom isn't about being independent. Freedom is about learning to dance the dance of both our independence and our interdependence at the same time. Freedom is about finding the balance between the small me and a bigger we. In relationship to each other, we learn to embrace the reality and the sacredness of our interdependence, while also respecting each other as independent, unique souls. We learn this in romance, in friendship, in marriage, in family. In fact, any place where two or more are gathered can become a space in which we touch our independence and our interdependence at the same time. Any place, including a hotel lobby. I leave the hotel, find cheap smoothies for my family, and then return. The lobby is emptier, but all heads are still bowed. The illusion believed. Interdependence ignored. I get on the elevator, and just before the doors close, a young boy gets in. I'm tempted to look straight ahead, to pretend we're both independent. Instead, I look down, and I ask him where he's from and where he's going. His mouth and his eyes both smile, as if he's been dying for someone to look at him. And he tells me. And then he does this surprising thing. 
This little kid asks me the same question, and I tell him. And suddenly we feel less like strangers, less like an adult and a kid separated by decades, and more like two human beings acknowledging the reality of our interdependence. Two human beings doing the human dance. So that is this week's reading. Um, it's There's some synchronicity going on here. Last night as I was driving home from work and thinking about this episode, uh, I was listening to the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett. It's On Being is the name of it. If you haven't heard of it, it's excellent. And she was interviewing Brene Brown. And one of the things the conversation focused on was summed up by Brene Brown in this way. The connection between people cannot be severed, but it can be forgotten. <laughs> so I love the synchronicity of hearing that last night and then coming here today to talk about this very idea. We're connected. That's a reality. It's a fact. Um, we're connected by the practicalities of everyday life, and we are connected by something much bigger than us. Um, we're connected at a spiritual level. And it's our sense of shame that tells us that we are unworthy and that we can reestablish a sense of worthiness by competing with other people. And this is what causes us to lose our sense of connection and creates this illusion of separateness. So what happens when we embrace our worthiness is we see through the illusion. We, we don't have to compete anymore. And we recognize that we can simply acknowledge the connection that's been there all along. Um, so, that's, so that's what Brene Brown and I think, I guess. Um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about all of this. Emily writes, spent last night walking with a friend at our daughter's soccer practice. They're 13. We're so grateful for Lovable to help us parent them. Oh, Emily, I'm so glad to hear that the, that Lovable is, is translating into wisdom for parenting for you. You know, I think I've told the story here before about how my agent first told me that it should be a parenting, you know, people are really responding to your letters and maybe you need to write letters to your kids, maybe you need to write a parenting book. And my wife was like, no, nah, dude, don't write a parenting book. <laughs> and, uh, and But what we ultimately concluded was that people were responding so well to my letters because it was the little kid in them that needed to hear uh, the, the letters that I was writing to my kids. And so, yeah, so this book became a letter to my kids, to the kid in me, and to the kid in every reader. And I do hope that what that translates into is as I learn to, in a, in a sense, reparent that little one within me um, and learn how to embrace my worthiness and, and cultivate belonging um, and awaken to my, my passions, um, that that will translate into what well, we've practiced within us, and now we can go out and uh, take that what we've learned and, and communicate it to our kids. And um, So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that that's happening for you, Emily. Jennifer writes, life isn't about comparison, it's about connection. Love this. Raising teens, and this is such an important message to send them and to remind myself. Yeah, Jennifer, and remember that teens are, um, teens are getting into the years of ego development. You know, we're, we're going to be talking about this a lot in the coming months. Um, this idea that we all take on shame early on, and so we build protections. Uh, and the protection is our false self, our ego. And those protections, uh, I, I often talk about as a castle, that we build walls to hide ourselves from other people. Then we put cannons on our walls where we get more aggressive to keep people at a, a greater distance and to defeat them, you know, to win, to compete with them and win so we feel better about ourselves. And then ultimately an ego throne where we, we feel like we've arrived and um, we are in charge. And uh, and so our, our teenagers are right in the middle of they built their ego walls, they're trying to build their ego cannons, they're getting more aggressive, they're becoming more competitive because they think that's what it's going to take is winning in order to prove their worth. Um, so to be aware that that's a normal process for them to go to and go through, and we are just trying to keep alive in them the awareness that they, that it, they don't ultimately have to do it. 
that in fact in the long run they they will burn themselves out on that way of trying to find worthiness um, and that the actual process of, of discovering our worthiness is much less comp complicated much less violent much less um, divisive and that it really is just about settling into the worthiness that's been there all along um, and, and beginning to disbelieve the voice of shame that, that, that tells us it's not true. Robin writes, kids are so hungry for our presence. I work in an elementary school library. Sometimes kids come for books. Many times they come to be seen. Oh, thank you for that, Robin. Um, you know, I've been giving talks lately and a story that I tell, and I think I've told it elsewhere, is that at the end of the soccer season, my friend and I coach kids, uh, my my fourth grader and his two daughters who are similar ages. And um, at the end of every season, we sit down with our team list and we identify a word about each kid that we have delighted in about them. Not something that they've done or a way that they perform, but a word that captures who they are, something delightful about them. And then we have an award ceremony where we get all the kids together with pizza, you know, and Capri Suns and whatever. And we, we've written the word, actually his wife, who does a great job of it, write, writes the word on a um, frisbee. And then we write the definition and sort of give them a benediction on the back of the frisbee. And it is fascinating. And these are kids that we've tried to corral all season long and get to pay attention to our coaching. But you give out that first frisbee and kids become aware <laughs> that they are about to be seen. And man, they are... they. They zone, they zone in, they, they stop moving, they're totally focused, and they just wait with anticipation for their word, right? So I think you've, I think you've totally uh, connected with what kids are doing when they come to the library. They're coming to be seen as much as they are coming to get a book. That is beautiful. Julie writes, a favorite image regarding connection is that we are all waves on an ocean. We feel separate, depends on the point of view, but there's an underlying truth, not always easy, easy to access. Yeah, I really appreciate any any metaphor that can help us connect to this very abstract idea that we are ultimately connected, um, and that that connection. There's, and I love what Brene Brown says: it can't be severed; it can only be forgotten, right? And so, as we remember our true self, and we get reconnected with that part of us that is ultimately worthy. We're getting reconnected with the part of us that is connected to everyone else as well. Henry Nouwen said it, um, the most personal is always the most universal. What he was getting at is that the closer we get to the center of us, the closer we get to the center of everybody, right? Um, the image that, the metaphor that often helps me is thinking of us each as like spokes on a wheel. And as we, as we move closer to the center of ourselves, we all discover ourselves at the hub. Um, we discover that we're all ultimately, ultimately connected at that place in the center of us. So um, this, is a, this is a revelation that arises from the, 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 the process of fully dedicating ourselves to, to embracing our worthiness. It's where we end up, and it, it truly is freedom. Um, but it's not a freedom in independence. It's a freedom in a sense of interdependence. So it's just a beautiful paradox. Julia writes, a metaphor that helps me is standing on a ladder, looking up or down, judging everyone above or below you. Get down and join everyone on, in common humanity. I love that. Um, <laughs> the, uh, there's a Thomas Merton quote in Lovable about how uh, we all try to climb the ladder of success and discover that it's, it's leaning against the wrong wall. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think ultimately he would say exactly what you're saying, Julia, that um, climbing the ladder at all is participating in this illusion. And the reality is, you know, everybody's waiting for you back on common ground, so you may as well go join them. 
and, uh, and, and let go of that illusion that you're going to be better by climbing higher in any way. Great metaphor. Brenda writes, love the Frisbee idea. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, we, it's an idea that's developed over time. It gets more and more elaborate every year. Um, all right, so while there's a brief pause here, I'm going to go ahead and get into the exercise. And I, again, as far as exercises go, I know we've had some tough ones recently. Um, this one is one that I just I just delight in doing. It's pro it's one I wish I did every week. Um, and so maybe it is a one we could one we could continue doing every week. So um, let's let's get into the week 17 practice. Here it is. Week 17 practice. This week marks the end of the months of listening. Of course, during these months, we've done much more than listen. During these months, we've slowed down, simplified, begun to breathe, been present to our pain, confronted our shame, and finally, we've listened for the voice of grace within us. Then, as we've recognized our truest, worthiest self, our most fundamental identity, we've begun to act on it, removing a mask or two, for instance. In the months of loving ahead, we will be removing more masks, revealing our true self, and finding our people in the process. But the months of loving will only be truly loving if we have first done away with our illusion of separateness. Experiencing our worthiness does not lead us to believe we are self-sufficient. It helps us to be at peace with the knowledge that we are insufficient. We are interconnected, interdependent, as big as a limitless soul, but as small and as fragile as a human body. This week is a bridge between the tasks of listening and loving, and it could become a bridge between you and everyone else as well. You depend upon thousands of people right now, in this moment. First, begin this week by making a list of every person you are connected to in one way or another. List at least 100 people. Second, as you go through your week, interacting with different people, note the ways in which you are connected. For instance, this morning, this isn't the morning that I wrote this, for instance, this morning, I went to a musical program at my son's school. A secretary in the principal's office buzzed me in and gave me a guest pass. His music teacher conducted the show. Another father got up and gave me a seat. And his classroom teacher guided the kids into the music room. That's five people right there, caring for me, making a good thing in my life possible. Keep track of those people in your life. Finally, choose one of those people and write a letter to him or her, expressing your gratitude. You probably won't give it to them, but write it as if it was your job to be the voice of grace to them, seeing their worthiness, telling them about it. After all, the signature sign that we have embraced our own worthiness is the joy we feel in embracing everyone else's worthiness too. And so that concludes our months of listening. Brenda writes, Yay, my dream is to make a blessing book, to write about everyone I've ever connected with. A list is so much easier. <laughs> Maybe a list is a good way to start it, Brenda. I, well, that's a beautiful aspiration, though. Holy cow. A blessing book to write about everyone you've ever connected with. Man. So I'll tell you something that's really struck me lately. Um, and So Irvin Yalom is the father of sort of modern... American psychiatry and he's written a lot of books and he's been sort of a you know an author mentor to me and he just published he's about 85 now I think he published his memoir becoming myself and it's beautiful uh, even if you're not a psychologist you might be interested in it um, but as he's writing he starts out as his memoir sort of describing the deep sense of loneliness in his childhood and the sense that he never really had a mentor that his parents were busy just trying to build their 
their grocery business and he was on his own a lot and he never had a mentor. But then he starts writing about meeting his wife and he says, wait a second, I have had a mentor, my wife. My wife has been my mentor. Then he starts talking about a medical uh, position that he was in and he says, wait a second, that that supervisor was my mentor. And he begins over the course of his memoir, at least one of the themes that I'm picking up on, is he begins to realize that he's been surrounded by this great crowd of mentors who have supported him and encouraged him and guided him and um, that he wasn't as isolated and alone as he thought all along, um, which is just a beautiful, I think that is what will happen. As we genuinely reflect on our life from a place of worthiness, we'll discover that uh, we weren't as disconnected as we thought all along. Julie writes, listening to the exercise, I'm finding myself thinking about people who have been the voice of grace to me by unexpectedly reaching out and caring and affirming my worthiness. Yeah. Uh, I think my experience is that there's more people like that than we realize. Um, and part of that is just because we weren't, at different points in our story, we weren't ready to receive the grace, right? We were surrounded by it. Um, but our shame was loud and we couldn't, couldn't take it in. I write in Lovable about how uh, I one day had this epiphany. And again, think, reflecting back on a time in my life where I felt very, very alone. And I had this epiphany that when we had moved away from the town where I'd felt most alone, that the, the parents of one of my best friends there had inscribed something on the inside of a book to me. And, uh, um, and I went and I found the old book. I'd, I'd held on to it for, for all those years, probably at some level remembering the inscription was in there. And, uh, and it was absolutely the voice of grace to me, all the way back in third grade. Um, and I hadn't remembered it for, you know, gosh, almost 30 years. Um, so I do believe that's true. I do believe the voice of grace is surrounding us and uh, um, we can open ourselves to the awareness of it and that will, that will lead us to a sense of connection to others as well. Robin writes, I guess grace is catchy. Yeah, grace, is, grace goes viral really quickly. Grace goes viral. Um, and, uh, and I don't mean like a, an episode of grace um, and a YouTube video goes viral. I mean the actual passing on of grace goes viral. It is a highly contagious uh, experience. Shelley writes, love the idea of a blessing book. I work with women that have been affected by emotional abuse. How would you approach this exercise if they are hurting by the ones they have connected with? I, I appreciate the question, Shelley, because I think it's important for us to be clear with everyone about what we mean by connection. The, the connection that we are trying to tune into is, um, is not just contact, right? Contact can be negative, neutral, positive. Um, and the women that you're describing have had contact with people that has been very painful, perhaps even traumatizing. And, and the sense of connection we're talking about is not that. We're talking about uh, connection with people who have in some way honored our worthiness um, by being there for us, with us, um, and, uh, you know, that's very different than contact. So, uh, Shelly, I would encourage you to, you could even, you could even go through an exercise with these women where you could talk about the difference, list the people who have contacted, who you've been in contact with in a way that was painful, and then list to make a list of people you've been in connection with in ways that have been, um, to some extent healing or encouraging or safe even. Um, and try to distinguish that for these women. 
Um, and in doing so, hopefully what you will do is you'll, you'll, you'll increase a sense of, oh wow, I have access to more connection than I thought I did. And because I have access to that connection, I can feel more secure um, setting boundaries against the sorts of contact that have been painful to me. That's that's my that's my initial reaction, Shelley. And I appreciate you asking the question because I think I want I want that in this episode. Um, I think it's important that people hear the distinction. Robin writes: One of the things we do at a therapeutic retreat I work with is to create a grief timeline, then go back and note other experiences of kindness and grace. Robin, I love that. Um, I think. Um, Shelley, I hope that um, I hope that you heard that comment by Robin. Um, I think that's exactly the idea: is a grief timeline and then a timeline of grace, right? Um, and maybe those two G words can sort of sit next to each other as experiences that can happen um, simultaneously in parallel. Um, and we can attend to the fullness of each experience. Oh, and then Robin writes, it's beautiful to see the intertwining of pain and grace. Isn't that something? To think that they don't just exist in parallel, but they intersect and connect. Um, and, and, but, but so important for us to be able to experience them as, as different threads that are connected so that we can relate to them. So Deb F. writes, I try to keep in mind the saying that people may not remember the things you do for them, but will always remember how you made them feel. Now I pause and always try to choose grace. Deb, that is so true, uh, and I, I would say, over the last year, um, I've really come to love speaking, public speaking, um, and the shift in my relationship to public speaking was the shift from, oh, I, I'm an expert up here who needs to give people the right ideas to walk away with, to, um, I, I, up here, I want to be authentic in a way that cultivates a sense of, of that cultivates an experience of worthiness in the audience. I want this to be an experience where people walk away feeling more worthy, even if they can't put two and two together about how that happened. <laughs> and I, I, I just enjoy so much getting up and doing that with folks. It's so, so much fun. And Robin writes, Deb, this is part of our decor in the teacher's lounge. Oh my gosh, I love that. Kids won't remember what you taught them, but how you made them feel. Boy, in that Brene Brown interview, uh, the, uh, one of the things she said is that she often tells teachers that that one hour in which a kid is in your class and you create a safe space for them might be the only hour in their whole day where they can hang up their book bag and their armor. We, we, all, have, we all have such a sacred vocation that in whatever spaces we're in, if we're people who have embraced our worthiness, we are people equipped to create safe spaces for other people. And. Uh, I just want you to know how much I appreciate all of you in the ways that you're going out into the world and doing that. Grateful for every single one of you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, you know, as expected, this was yet another wonderful conversation. Um, we're going to end the months of listening right here. Um, but I want you to remember this is also just the beginning. With this foundation of worthiness, we're going to enter next into the months of loving. And, uh, and here's a little preview. And I pulled the epigraph of part two of the companion book. And, uh, and this is a, a quote by Frederick Beekner. You can survive on your own, you can grow strong on your own, you can prevail on your own, but you cannot become human on your own. Um, and this idea, again, is at the heart of lovable, that oftentimes the, the process of embracing our worthiness is not a group project. It's an inner journey rather than an outer journey to try to get a sense of worthiness from others. But our journey doesn't end there. Once we've embraced our worthiness, becoming fully human also means finding places to belong, 
and, and finding ways that we can practice the passions that have been given to us from the very beginning. Um, so this, this embracing of our worthiness is the beginning. And as we enter into the months where we're focusing more on cultivating belonging, um, this is a process of becoming more fully human and we do it with other people. So I'm so excited to enter into that with you all next week. Um, and uh, week 18 is entitled, A Kid Named Lonely. Until then, remember, you are lovable and so is everyone else. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Cause you-